Welcome to the Queen Trail Podcast. Meditation doesn't have to be sitting still and having an empty mind. The journey is such a beautiful thing because we are all on a journey. You want to make sure you have some kind of distribution plan, at least have an idea of it, because you can make this really amazing film and it only gets seen by your family and friends. Old Hollywood is still intact. Every horse runs hard, but when they win, and they know it. They've got this little sass about them. It was pretty rough. I had to go into the water and with my med pack, swim to the beach, treat these guys, put them on my back, swim out to the helo. And I'm like, oh my God, I've never seen those before. And I said, what are those? And before I could even finish the sentence, she said, oh my God, you didn't touch them, did you? Even if monarchs go away and we never see one again, because there never will be monarchs again if they die out, it is just a little indicator of larger threats my dad said, so what were you guys doing in the desert? I said, we were taking nude photos. Hey, everybody, welcome back. I hope you had a great week since the last time that we got together. I am really excited to present to you this week's In the Company of Friends talk with Katie Godfrey. She is a paramedic and a dear friend of my son, Cameron, who suggested that I talk to her. We have a wide ranging conversation that covers parenthood, how she got into medicine, and a whole lot more. If you are squeamish, I am just going to put a little warning here in the front that we do talk very briefly about a couple of yucky things, but mostly it is a really interesting and fascinating conversation and a lot of fun to talk to Katie. So please grab a cuppa and join Katie and I in this week's In the Company of Friends talk. Enjoy. I'm just so excited. Cameron had so many great things to say about you and he was like, you should talk to my friend Katie. (laughs) I'm like, of course, you know, I can tell he's just really impressed with you and everything that you've done and just really wanted the world to hear your story. Well, that's really sweet of him. Yeah. How did you guys meet? Um, So we met, I had just gotten out of the Marine Corps and my family is from San Antonio. And so I still had the ability to get on base and like go to like the shops on base, so like the commissary and the PX. And we actually met over there while he was in training still. Oh, when he was at Sam Houston? Yeah, at Fort Sam Houston. What a great meeting. I mean, it was kind of <laughs> yeah. like it was meant to be. Yes, very coincidental. Like it, it was just a chance meeting and we hit it off and he's been by my side as my friend for, I mean, over five years now. And he's seen me go through a lot. My relationship with... Uh, not just my husband with the guy I was dating before my husband and everything that happened with that. And then my marriage and like having two kids and my husband's deployments. And he's, he's been a really good friend to both me and my husband, Tim. So, you know, he's seen the full gambit of what life can give you both from his own experiences and from watching what Tim and I have gone through. He's just such a good guy. He's always looking out for everybody else. And I'm just very thankful that you guys have given him back that same kind of friendship. And he uh, he was telling me that he's got to give three different places that he'll be sent to after he finishes his training. And I think he said something like Germany, Italy, and Kansas. And I'm like, wait, yeah. Kansas? <laughs> Like, why are you going to do Kansas? My best friends live there. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And we, uh, we jokingly call him Uncle Cam, which is just super funny because both, you know, me and my husband are both 
very, very pale people. And my children are these like very white, blonde hair, blue eyes. And then every time Cam comes and visits, it's just like such a funny juxtaposition. Because you're like, oh, this is your Uncle Cam. And it's these cute little ghost children. (laughs) That's hilarious. How old are they? Uh, So my youngest is two. uh, He's almost two and a half. And then my oldest is four. That's such cute ages. I mean, like that is in the thick of parenting too. Oh, yes. They are very... (laughs) And you're testing my my patience daily. <laughs> it was so funny because I was really worried about having a second child, but it turned out to be such a great thing because they became each other's best friends. So I don't know if that happens with everybody, but they kept each other busy while I was doing other things and it, it ended up being like a huge help. Yeah. And they're just getting to the age where like they're not doing a whole lot of parallel play anymore. Um, They're really starting to play with each other. And my oldest is very, very sweet, like just the sweetest kid. And he like every night he wants to go say goodnight to my youngest and give him hugs and kisses. And, you know, if he knows that I am trying to do something, he kind of will guide the youngest one off to go play. And my youngest is just an absolute terrorist right now. He's in those terrible twos. Um, so I, I appreciate that they are starting to play together and starting to interact better because the first couple of years, my oldest was pretty young. So they, he was kind of in that parallel play age anyways, where they kind of play next to each other and not with each other. And I don't think he loved having a little brother, but just these last couple months, they've really started to get close to each other and spend a lot of time together. And it's like, okay, he's here to stay. I might as well try to get along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is so adorable. Um, Cameron was telling me that you were doing something in aviation. Yeah. Yeah. So I was trained in cryogenics, which was essentially, um, it's like working with different air mixtures. So like putting nitrogen in tires because oxygen will explode in aircraft tires when they land because it gets so hot. Uh, So essentially a glorified tire filler. Um, It sounds like a really cool job. And then you actually get to like the nitty gritty of what it is. And you're like, oh, okay, this is terrible and boring. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, that's funny because when you say cryogenics, I think about people freezing themselves, you know, when they die. Yeah, that's what people think of. They're like, oh, are you freezing people? Like, no, just uh, just working with like fuel mixtures and air mixtures and nothing nothing too fun. It's good to know that stuff, though. I worked in automotive for like 18 months. I mean, it was the craziest, most insane 18 months of my life because nobody would think dealerships are that crazy, but they are. Um, And, you know, I went in like knowing what pedals to hit and where to put the gas in. And that was it. And I left pretty much knowing every single thing that the engine of the car did. But one of the things that I learned about air pressure, when it's really cold, a lot of times your tire pressure monitoring system will come on because your tires seem like there's not enough air in there because of the cold. And then when it heats up, that gas expands. And then it seems like there's too much pressure in your tires. So it's kind of good to know that stuff so you're not freaking out. What you were doing was a lot more complicated. Yeah. And when I got out of the Marine Corps, the kind of interim job that I had between the Marine Corps and then me getting married and moving to a different state, I did work at like one of those, like the Jiffy Lube, if you know what I'm talking about, like the 15 minute oil change places. 
Um, and especially during the summer, as we were down in San Antonio, it gets so hot down there that people come in and be like, oh, our tire pressure is too high. And I'm like, no, it's just really, really hot outside. So when you're driving like that, the air pressure seems like it's too high, but really like you're one or two above where you're supposed to be. And if you go home and put your car in the shade, like let it cool off a little bit, it's going to come back down to where it needs to be. And those tires are made to be able to withstand being outside of those set parameters just a little bit. So, you know, we would have to all the time like please don't take air out of your tires like you're not supposed to take your tire pressure when you've been driving on 150 degree hot asphalt for the past two hours right (laughs) and then the other thing I got was the guys wouldn't believe me when I would tell them this stuff and I was like all right I will transfer you to a man who's gonna tell you the exact same thing Yes. And and unfortunately, I seem to have a (laughs) proclivity for getting into different occupations that are very male dominated, like Marine Corps is very much a boys club. And, you know, people will tell you, oh, you know, we're fully integrated and women aren't treated any different. It's absolute BS. They absolutely do get treated different. And then I get out and I got into, you know, working at that particular shop and it was the same way. And now I work as a paramedic. And it's not so much the people I work with, like none of my coworkers or my leadership has ever, you know, treated me different because I'm a woman, but we show up at these patients' houses and especially if I'm working with another female partner, we get these like comments like, oh, they sit the little girls, you know, stuff like that, um, which is frustrating because I consider myself to be a, a pretty good paramedic, but we always joke like we get sent out on lift assist sometimes and it's essentially just somebody who has fallen and they're not able to get themselves back up. And sometimes these patients are heavier. And so we joke like me and a female partner will go out and they'll make their little comment about, oh, uh, they sent the little girls to come pick me up. And I'm like, man, that comment gives me the strength of a thousand oxen. I could deadlift a car right now. (laughs) I bet. You know, it's kind of like on one hand, you understand why they're saying that they're just trying to be cute and they're not at their best at that moment. But also it just makes you realize how ingrained these perspectives of females are in just culture and society, you know? Yeah. And I work in kind of a more rural area. We have a couple of little pockets that are pretty heavily populated, but for the most part, we run farmers and these Uh, older folks that have been out in these little country towns for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, some of them were born there. And and so I think that kind of plays into it um, because you're right. It is, it is kind of a stereotype and it's, it's kind of how they were raised and a lot of them are not really willing to give up their preconceptions of like what gender standards are. Right. And I think it's hard for them too. you know, once it's become a norm for them to see the world through that particular lens, it's just really hard to change that. But at least you're helping them up. (laughs) And I, I try not to let it bother me at some point, like you can either just continue to let it bother you and let it like fester, or you can say, oh, you know, oh yeah, the girls came to get you. And then you let it go and you move on with your life because there's other things to worry about. Absolutely. I had a neighbor across the street who had one of those monitors. There were three neighbors, including myself, who would kind of watch out for her because she lived by herself and she'd had a stroke several years before that. And it was kind of a weekly occurrence that 
the paramedics, the EMTs, the entire fire department would show up, you know, she was always fine. She would get so mad when they would show up. Right. I'm yeah. fine. I'm fine. You know, but I would tell her every once in a while, I would say, Hey, Anna Maria, cause you know, the firemen were super cute. So Maria, <laughs> can I have your monitor for a minute? <laughs> Those were pretty funny times. So how did you get into medicine? Oh, that is a, that is a whole story. Um, <laughs> So after my husband and I moved to Kansas from Texas, we moved up to Fort Riley. We found out I was pregnant pretty much as soon as we got there. And Tim ended up deploying when I was about six or seven months pregnant. I was due in April and he left like mid-January. He was on a rotation, essentially. He was in Europe. So the, the week that I ended up having my oldest, I had gone to labor and delivery, I would say three or four times. And I kept telling him like something is wrong. I don't know what is wrong, but something is wrong with me. And they kept kind of pushing it off as, you know, oh, you're a new mom. You know, you're just tired. You're sore. You're, I was 37 weeks at this time. You know, you're reaching the end. You're just miserable. The last weeks of pregnancy are miserable. And I was like, no, something is wrong with me. So Friday night, I had gone to labor and delivery, gotten released probably around midnight, went home. My mom and all of her motherly wisdom. She was like, no, something's wrong. I'm coming up there. Made my dad drive through the night to come up to stay in Kansas with me. And she had texted me. I know she's, she's the best. And so she texted me and she's like, Hey, we're like 15 minutes out. I was laying on the couch and I rolled off the couch because my house was a mess. I was like, I got to pick this up, rolled off the couch (laughs) and my water broke at 37 weeks. Oh my god! And I showed back up at labor and delivery and they're like, Oh God, this girl again. And I was like, Nope, my water broke. I know it. Sure enough, it had broken. I got induced and I had my son the next morning, pretty early, like five or six in the morning. And the whole experience was just really negative for me, like starting from going to labor and delivery and them essentially telling me like nothing's wrong with you. And it ended up that they had not looked at my labs. And if they would have looked at my labs, they would have realized that my protein was really, really elevated. I ended up being preeclamptic when I was checked into labor and delivery. My blood pressure was like 200 over 150. Oh my God. Creeping up on having a seizure kind of blood pressure. Yeah. Um, And I'm really lucky that I didn't have a seizure at home because nobody would have found me. I would have died. My son would have died. And then being in labor and delivery, the nurses were just like, not nice people. Like I know more than you and you don't know what's going on. So you just need to listen to us. And even up to actually delivering him, I had just gotten like a cervical check. And then like five minutes later, I was like, oh, I I feel like you need to check me again. And I had to argue with this nurse for her to check me again. Mm-hmm. And if she wouldn't have checked me, I would have just had a baby in the bed because he was crowning. And like 10 minutes later, I had a baby. Wow. Yeah. I wasn't listened to. Uh, we had asked for a delayed cord cutting. And as, pretty much as soon as my oldest was born, she just like snipped the cord and left. Oh, my God. And so that whole experience really set off. Like, I would I would say it was probably what sparked my postpartum depression. And I had really, really severe postpartum depression um, because it was so quick. My husband wasn't able to come home from deployment. He ended up coming home when... John was, I think, six or seven days old, stayed for like three days and then had to go back and then didn't come back until he was six months old. Oh, my God. That's so much to deal with, too. I mean, like you're moving, you find out you're pregnant, your husband gets deployed, 
that's a lot to deal with. And then your hormones going crazy because your body's trying to readjust to not being pregnant. Yeah. And it was, it was a pretty hard year. Um, and then the same doctor, I had it like a cyst on my ovary, refused to take this cyst out that was causing me pain. She was like, well, let's try birth control. Let's take you off birth control. Oh, it'll, it'll fix itself with your next period, blah, 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 blah. And I ended up switching doctors and the doctor that I switched to was like, no, this is stupid. Let's go ahead and just take it out. And unfortunately, I lost one of my tubes because the cyst had adhered to it and scarred it so badly that it put me at risk for an ectopic oh, pregnancy. No. So they had to take the entire tube out. And if I would have just been listened to in the first place and not been put off for like eight months that she kept like avoiding this surgery, I wouldn't have lost that tube because it wouldn't have adhered. Um, so that the whole experience with just this one doctor, I ended up getting to the point where I was like, well, you know, I kind of want to go into medicine because I don't want other people to have to experience this kind of what I consider medical neglect that I went through. Absolutely. And so originally I actually wanted to get my PA. And so I was like, well, I'm going to get my EMT because that will give me the ability to get my patient care hours that I need to apply for PA school. So I went and I got my EMT and I really, really loved the class. And I got into the field and I was like, nope, this is it. This is where I belong. I love it out here. I love the things we're doing, but I want to be able to do more. So I went and got my paramedic and that is what I do now. And I really, really do love it. We still play with the idea of me going and getting my PA and being in a clinical setting, but I love how much freedom and autonomy I get as a paramedic out in the field. We have supervisors and they show up obviously on like more critical calls, but for the most part, it's me and my partner and we're out here doing things and I get to make these clinical decisions on my own. And I, I just really love it. Like I get to meet all kinds of people. I get to do all kinds of things. We have this huge scope of practice that we're allowed to do in my state, but really it all, it all stemmed from this terrible experience I had giving birth to my first child. I'm so sorry that you went through that because I know that is just terrifying. I I think a lot of women have these experiences. Unfortunately, you know, um, I remember with Cameron, when you, you know, some of the things you were saying, you know, I went to the hospital and they told me, oh, just go home. You're not going to have this baby for another couple of days. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I'm not going home because I know I'm going to have this baby. And so I just walked the halls for half an hour. I went back and it was the same thing. Like, why are you back? We told you to leave come back in two days. And I'm like, no. And, you know, so they gave me an attitude, but they checked and the nurse was like, oh, honey, you're like about to go into labor. <laughs> She's like, you're going to have this baby right now. And I'm like, I told you, you know, <laughs> and I can't remember. I, I believe it was with Sophia. You know, I had some postpartum depression with Cameron as well. And the depression started, it was like gestational depression. And I had a male doctor at that time. And I went in to talk to him. And he goes, and I, I'm practically quoting here, when women are pregnant, they feel euphoric, they're very happy, they're ecstatic, they're never depressed. And I remember just leaving there even more yeah. depressed than I had been, you know, it was just like, I don't have any advocacy. I don't have anybody on, on my side. What am I going to do? And by the time I got home, I was like, all right, call the medical organization and see if they have a different doctor. And they assigned me to a female doctor who was much gentler and much more thoughtful and, you know, really helped me out. But 
I know that these things happen. And then, you know, with Sophia, I had an emergency C-section and I remember going in to have the stitches removed or the staples, I guess. And there were these two nurses and they were Filipinas and they were very angry with each other, um, which is the only reason why I'm bringing up their ethnicity, because they were talking in Tagalog, but they were yelling at each other in Tagalog. And the nurse is like snipping my staples and she's just yanking them out with this plier and they're like yelling at each other. And I'm like, um, maybe you can do this at another time. You know, there's a lot of staples. <laughs> so, you know, there's stuff like that. I had an IV in my arm and the nurse came in and decided to take my blood pressure on that same arm and blood went spraying across the room. It was like, what are you doing? (laughs) So it's, you know, like, I'm not trying to lessen what you said, because that's just terrible and frightening and should have never happened. But I think it happens a lot in medicine and it might be that clinical setting. And it's just amazing that you did something so big to try to prevent anybody else from experiencing that same level of neglect, that same level of complacency towards the patient. Because I mean, that Hippocratic oath is in place that, you know, you're supposed to be there for the patient. And I know that medical professionals get so tired and overwhelmed, and they're just humans too. But when the neglect becomes so extreme that you could have had a seizure at your home and and nobody was listening to you. That's a serious problem. So I just, you know, like, I love that this is what you're doing. I get like being tired because, you know, we work 24 hour shifts, two or three shifts a week. Uh, We work what's called a Kelly schedule. Um, So it's 24 hour shifts and we'll work one day on, one day off, one day on, one day off, one day on, and then we'll have four days off. And by that third shift, like we are tired. We don't, a lot of the time we get to sleep through the night, but you know, we don't get to decide when we're getting calls. So sometimes we're up all night for all three of those shifts and you're tired, you're worn out. You don't want to do this anymore. Like you're ready to go home. And I can really draw on those experiences to keep me present. And even with calls that, you know, might be a little silly and they might be something that isn't necessarily an emergency, but I try and stay focused. If they're calling us, it's an emergency to them. This is the worst day of their life, even if it's just a stub toe and, you know, (laughs) whatever the case is, like still having that human kindness and still listening, regardless of what my personal feelings are on the matter. Like I'm going to treat all of my patients the same, even when it's not a giant trauma and this person is bleeding out and they need serious interventions. Right. Have you had the opportunity to deliver babies? No, I haven't. And it, it's like my dream call. And there's so many people in my profession who you you talk to about it that are just like terrified of having to deliver a baby in the field. But I would love it. I think it would be such a cool experience. Oh my God, it would. Um, I've gotten to deliver them in the hospital. So when you're getting your paramedic, you spend 400 hours in clinical settings, kind of learning how to start IVs and how to do various procedures. And one of the clinical rotations we do is through labor and delivery because, you know, we don't see it very often, but they still want us to be proficient in dealing with pregnancy and childbirth and all that good stuff. So I did get the chance to deliver a baby when I was in the hospital and it was like such a cool thing to get to be a part of in the first place. And I remember 
Like I delivered this baby and they put them in the little heated incubator thing so they can check them out. And I was standing on one side and this brand new dad, this is his first baby, was standing on the other side. And this man looks me in the eyes and he goes, she did so good. She's amazing. And I'm Aww. like, okay, I got to go because I'm about to burst into tears. But it was it was just a really cool. I'm getting teary eyed. <laughs> I know. Just telling the story. It was so sweet. And it's it's a cool thing to get to be a part of period. But also there's a a quote in EMS and it talks about how we get personally invited into these uh, kind of sacred moments of people's lives, you know, childbirth and death. And these are moments in people's lives that are typically reserved for family and close friends. And they're very intimate and very sacred. And we're getting personally invited into these moments. And it's, it's really such an honor to get to do that. Those are really intense times. That's amazing. You know, I worked in medicine for a really long time before working in automotive, uh, probably a decade, I'm going to say I worked in home health. And what ended up happening during that time period was the AIDS epidemic. It, it taught me so much talking to these families, because at the time, AIDS was a death sentence, unfortunately. And I'm so thrilled that there are medications out there that can manage it now. You know, they've cracked the code and figured that out. Um, But at the time, we knew all of these people were going to pass. And I would talk to these patients from time to time. I always say that I worked in medicine because it was a small home health pharmacy, but I wasn't a medical professional. I was actually in the business office, but we had a staff of maybe like 30 or 40 people at that time. And eventually we expanded and became really big, but everybody had an opportunity to talk to these patients uh, for whatever reason and their families. And I would talk to them and they would tell me the really important things in life, the things that really mattered at that point where they knew that there weren't too many tomorrows left for them. And it just made such a huge impact that, you know, that was like the nineties And it's just carried on throughout my life, this sense of we don't have tomorrow and we've got to be kind to one another and focus on what it is to live and, you know, go out and have the adventures and be the best parent that you can be and show your kids how to how to love life, too. And it just all stemmed from having those series of conversations over many years with these patients. And it is a very sacred communication that you're having with somebody else at that time in their lives. Yeah. And we do deal with hospice patients now and again, um, not super often because, you know, a lot of times they're, they're DNRs and they know that they're getting ready to die and they don't typically call us for DNR patients just because they're DNR. There's not, anything we can really do for them. But we get to hang out with those kind of people sometimes. And then we have, you know, our true emergency calls like car accidents and, you know, house fires and shootings and stabbings and heart attacks. Uh, And these people who are not expecting that today is their last day, they were just going about their business. And it does really put into focus that um, you, you don't get tomorrow. So it really is important to keep in mind that there's so many other things in life to worry about than what people are talking about or what people say about you. 
Um, like if you're happy and you're not hurting anybody and you're living your best life, then so be it. Like I, I don't worry myself over trying to make other people happy or trying to live up to an image that other people have for me. As long as I'm doing good for myself and for other people to the best of my ability, then that is really what matters to me. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be true to yourself and we're all here to, you know, do the best that we can. Um, I just want, in case anybody's listening and does not know what DNR stands for, it's do not resuscitate, right? Yes. So a lot of our patients, our older patients, especially they have, uh, so you have like your DNRs, which are do not resuscitate. And then you have like DNIs, which is do not intubate, uh, which a lot of our older patients, like, yeah, they want resuscitative efforts, but they don't want to be intubated. And then just advanced directive as far as what people do and don't want. So maybe they want those life-saving measures. Maybe they don't. Maybe they just want like pain control. So, you know, if they're in horrible amounts of pain, we're going to treat their pain. But if they go into cardiac arrest, they don't want us to resuscitate them. Is there a larger and larger variety of things that people don't want? Like if you're going into, say, a car accident, um, where somebody needs to be resuscitated, how do you know? Or do you just, I mean, do you just start resuscitation efforts and then wait until they get to the hospital? Um, So as far as resuscitation efforts go, um, we always default to, we don't know this person. We don't know if they have a DNR. Um, Even if somebody says they have a DNR, we need to have that official paperwork in our hand in order to stop resuscitation. Because, you know, Maybe I hate my husband and he got to a car accident. I'm like, oh, this is my chance. Yeah, he doesn't want to be resuscitated. (laughs) So we always default to this person wants to be resuscitated. We we ride a very fine line as far as legalities go. And we have to be very careful about what we do with patients that are DNR and do have advanced directives. And it can be hard when they're like unconscious, especially because they can't tell us what they want. So, you know, if we're going to a car accident and, you know, somebody says, oh, they're DNR, oh, they don't want this, that, and the other. um, We have a tendency to, uh, unless we can prove it, we're going to lean to the side that this person doesn't know this other person and we're going to do everything we can. Most people though, that are DNR, either they carry that DNR with them or they have a DNR bracelet And those bracelets are really hard to get. Like you can't just order it off the internet. Um, And those are always really helpful if you don't want to carry around a paper copy. And then we have other demographics such as like Latter-day Saints, Mormons, the Amish uh, who don't want certain things. So like they'll take pain medication, but they can't take blood because blood is sacred to them and they can't get blood from another person. Uh, Those kind of situations can be really frustrating for us especially when they evolve like children because we know what we need to do to help somebody but we have to be respectful of their religion and I'm not a religious person and so it can be frustrating to me as a parent especially but also just as a healthcare provider who wants to help people and we're not able to because that's their religious preference so you have to be very respectful of that and really bite your tongue and swallow that frustration because it's not my place to tell somebody like how to live their life um but it's definitely frustrating. I can imagine. Yeah. I took a community emergency response training and the class that we took on 
a serious emergency where, you know, buildings have crumbled and people are injured and you're running around and, you know, this was a school setting. And we were told this four-year-old has lost 30% of their blood volume. And you have an elderly person with a broken leg whose blood pressure is very elevated. Who are you going to save? And most of the class by this point, we said we would save the elderly person because the the four-year-old probably didn't have a chance. And I remember the lady next to me started crying and she got very upset. She was very vocal about it. And it kind of, you know, like it broke my heart because I know those are really hard decisions and, you know, it made sense to us. But um, I can imagine that these are just really hard decisions that you have to make, like you said, especially when it's a child or when you know that there's something that you can do, but you're being told that, yeah, we won't, you know, we won't accept that particular treatment. Right. Yeah. And we, an EMS, we have a, it's actually like an official field triage system and it's put out by like the federal disaster agency and we're required to comply to it in order to remain an EMS service and all EMS services are the same way. And it is, I've fortunately I've never been put in a situation where I'm forced to decide between this person or that person. Um, but we trained for it and I just can't imagine like what a gut wrenching decision it is to, you know, you look at this child and you want to save them, but there's 15 other people that also need to be saved. And this, this child isn't viable they're not going to make it to the hospital. You know, you, you don't have the time and the resources to save them, but you have the resources to save these 15 other people. So you have to make that decision. And it's the people that I know that have been put in those situations, like some of them, it's been career ending for them because you have to play God a little bit. And I don't think anybody wants to have to make those kind of decisions. It's tough. Yeah, I think this was part of the NIMS. Is that what you're talking about? The National yeah. Incident Management System, I think is what that stands for. Yep. Yeah. And it's it's not it's not fun. Um, the closest that I've been to that kind of situation was maybe six months ago ish. Um, it was it was in the spring because school is still in session. And I know it kind of happened around the United States, but we had six or seven schools in Kansas who had fake school shooting calls come in. And we didn't know at the time that these were fake prank calls. And so we responded like it was a real school shooting. And I remember being out front of this school and all of these emergency vehicles were lined up. You know, we had multiple EMS units there. We had the fire department there. The police were there. Not just my supervisor, but my department director was there who is just this really, really smart guy, very calm, level-headed. He's been doing this for forever. So we're all standing like in this little huddle talking about what we're going to do. You know, we have SWAT paramedics who would be the first ones to go in and then you'd have triaging units and the people who are actually transporting. So we're talking about who's going in, who's triaging, you know, who's having to make these decisions, where we're going to go, what we're going to do. And we got stood down. We're like, this was a prank call. But I don't think any of us that responded to that, like I paced the station for the rest of the day. I was so anxious and for the rest of the week. And even now just talking about it, it makes me anxious to think about because 
these are situations that we can be put in and you don't know when it's going to happen or why it's going to happen. And you, you just have to show up and do your job. And I think that's the part of EMS and first responding in general that people forget about. Like you see the mistakes that people make on the news and it's easy to vilify mistakes that paramedics have made. And, but I don't think that people want to look past mistakes that are being made and see that we have these awful situations that we're put in. And sometimes people don't have the ability to leave this field when they need to after those situations. And so they just kind of become these like bad providers, if that makes sense. Yeah, I couldn't imagine being in that level of stress. It's a lot. And I think that there are so many moving parts when something like that, when those emergencies happen. And there's so many unknowns in real time, it's it's afterwards when you can go in and start to dissect things. But in real time, none of those things that you later see were known. And so I think that the responders always are doing the best that they can in those situations. It's just the, the level of pressure and the stress has got to be overwhelming. Right. And you like never know um, the triage system that we use for my county. We have like alpha through echo level calls and then we have omegas. Uh, omegas are, we don't see them very often. They're essentially like this person has nothing wrong. They just want to go to the hospital. Like they don't have any complaints. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't see them very often. But so an alpha level call would be like really low level. Like this person has some stomach pain, but it's not super severe. And so we respond to that. We call it responding cold. So we just kind of drive over there all the way up to an echo. And an echo level call would be uh, a cardiac arrest, a choking that has a full occlusion of the airway. So this person's not breathing and they're getting ready to go into cardiac arrest. So those are our most critical calls. But you never know because I've had alpha level calls that I go to and, you know, the dispatcher who has assigned it an alpha, they have kind of a flow chart that they have to go through that gets them to that triage level. So I'm never blaming dispatch because it's not their fault. It's just their flow chart. But we get to these patients sometimes that have been triaged alpha level and these patients are super, super sick. And so you really have to be well-trained and prepared all the time. And my county is really good. We do like monthly training. We have a training captain who is very, very passionate about his job and wants us to be the best little paramedics and EMTs that we can be. And he does a great job training us, uh, a great job making sure that we are always up to date on practices and medications and how to use those medications and where to use those medications. So I've been really blessed with my county to be able to have that much training Mm -hmm. put into me. But, you know, some counties, some services don't get that. And I think that's where you start to see those mistakes made is where you don't do a lot of training or, you know, you get your paramedic or your EMT and you just kind of never go anywhere from there. So I think it's really important to make sure that you're always training and always like keeping up to date on that. Cause you never know, you never know when that call is going to come out. You never know when that alpha level is going to turn out to be somebody who's about to go into cardiac arrest. You just, you don't get to make those decisions. And that's just life, right? I mean, things can change in seconds, too. They might have been an alpha on the phone, and then by the time you get there, things have just radically changed. Um, But then I'm also wondering, when you said flowchart, I'm thinking of my mom, who always always minimizes everything that's wrong with her, you know? Um, And I'll (laughs) give you an example. A couple of years ago, I 
got a call and she told me she fell. And I wasn't home, asked her a few questions, and she said it wasn't that big of a deal. So I was like, okay, I will come by in an hour. And I get there and she had fallen flat on her face and her teeth had gone through her lower lip. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God, mom, how is this minor? (laughs) She's like, it's not that big of a deal. I'm like, oh no, we got to go to the emergency room and definitely get that looked at, stitches, make sure that your teeth are intact. You know, her glasses had broken and cut her forehead. So she's blue. I thought she broke her nose. Um, So Uh (laughs) that says she's fine now, thank God. (laughs) But do you think that because the dispatch center is going through this flow chart and they're asking the patients to self-evaluate you know, because my mom would just say, oh, it's just a scratch. You know, she might be dying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and dispatch, you know, they don't have the ability to see these patients. So, you right. know, they have to believe them when they say, oh, I just have a scratch when in reality, you know, their arms hanging off. Exactly. Uh, and it, <laughs> like I said, like I kind of work in a, a rural area and sometimes it's, it's always these older farming men who uh, like minimize everything. Uh-huh. And I, I can recall like a certain patient and I had gone out for some chest pain. So we get out there and we're like, you know, how long have you been having this chest pain? And he's like, oh, I've been having it since early this morning. We're like, okay, did you finish all your work? And he's like, yeah, I had work to do. We're like, okay. So we take a 12 lead, which is essentially a picture of the heart, an EKG, so we can see like exactly what's going on. And this man was having what we call a STEMI, which is an ST elevated myocardial infarction, essentially a giant heart attack, like the kind of heart attacks that people die from. And we're like, you're in how much pain? Like on a scale of one to 10? He's like, oh, like a three or a four. And we're like, okay, get in the truck. Let's go. But we see it. We see it a lot with these farming type older generation that like they don't want to bother anybody and it's not that bad. And, you know, they they have these horrible injuries or, you know, this giant heart attack going on and you just kind of have to chuckle at it. Like it's it's kind of a common question to ask, uh, like, did your wife make you call? Because if his wife didn't make him call and he called himself, I know it's going to be something serious because they will not call for themselves. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think that's men in general because my dad's like that. And he was an avid bike rider and he got hit on his bicycle and ended up in the hospital. And my mom got the call. But then I guess one of the nurses asked him if somebody calls and asks, if you're here, do you want us to let them know that you're here? And he said, Nah, because he didn't think it was that big of a deal. He ended up in the (laughs) hospital for like three days, had two surgeries to repair his arm. The surgeon did an amazing job on his arm. And um, in the meantime, my mom's like losing her mind because she thinks that, you know, you hear it's a vehicle versus a bicyclist accident. And um, and it was pretty bad. You know, eventually I got a hold of him on his cell phone and I go, did you tell the nurses not to let us in? And he's like, no. And I go, well, did somebody ask you, you know, this question? And he goes, oh, yeah, I just told them no, because it's just, you know, like, it's, it's, it's nothing major. And <laughs> the fender of the car had caught his wrist and pulled back his whole forearm. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's not just a scratch, dad, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> Please talk to the nurse when she comes in and let us in. <laughs> but it's that sort of thing. And, you know, he was, um, he was born in the early 40s. He like grew up in Los Angeles for a bit. And then they moved to St. Paul, Minnesota. And it was always kind of like that generation that grew up through like the 30s and the 40s. And um, probably even part of the 50s, they're like used to things being rough and just getting through them. And this is normal. And, you know, my body can withstand anything. And so they just don't think that it's that big of a deal. And like you said, then you get the person who's calling you because they stubbed their toe because that does hurt like crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a lot to balance. Yeah. And I was actually just talking to one of my friends about this yesterday. Uh, She's a ER nurse and that's actually how we met because I transferred a patient from her ER to a different hospital because she works there. They're called critical care hospitals Mm. or critical access hospitals. And it's essentially like a county hospital that doesn't have a ton of resources, but they have abilities to like stabilize a patient so we can take them elsewhere. So she works at a critical access hospital and we were just talking about like how strange it is because it's whiplash sometimes we go from actively having somebody die in our hands and cardiac arrest and having to you know tell these grieving families you know I'm so sorry we did everything we could but there's nothing more we can do to we go home restock the truck and now we're going out on these calls that are much less critical and they're stubbed toes or you know i see a lot of pediatric calls with babies who like choke on milk and these are anxious new parents and so they call us and these babies are completely fine and you know it's just it's whiplash like one minute we have a dead person at our hands and the next minute we're cooing over this cute little baby <laughs> that is perfectly fine yeah Well, it's so much to take in, but I can see how you would love this profession because it's exciting and you get to meet so many different personalities and sometimes cooing over a baby is exactly what you need to kind of take that edge off of how stressful the job can be. And it's also a very necessary job. I mean, I don't want to minimize that there's a lot out there that requires a paramedic to be right there at the right time. Do you get a lot of people coming back to thank you for switching that situation from when that could be certain death to they're fine? We do every once in a while. And it's always like such a joy to get to see patients like out in the wild. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, for example, I had a pediatric patient a little over a year ago. Um, I had just gotten my paramedic. I was still in FTAP, which is a field training program that prepares me to kind of be on my own without another paramedic. And we went out for this pediatric patient who was super critical, very, very sick. And several months later, I just happened to see this patient at a Halloween event um, because the county I work in, a lot of these towns have these big community events. So we were out there just kind of, we show up so that people see our face and we can interact with the community. And I, I see this kid just out doing his little trick or treat thing and like having a good time. And like, it's, it's such a joy to get to see them out in the wild like that, just living their lives perfectly fine. And a lot of the times they don't recognize us, which is completely fine for me because I don't really like having to, (laughs) having to talk to people that I've run, um, I know that kind of sounds horrible, but like 
I kind of, I like to be in the background. Like I, I don't do this job because I want people to like recognize me and thank me for my service and all that good stuff. Yeah. That, that anonymity. Yeah. And we get to see these people and be like, oh, wow, like I ran that person and now they're out here and healthy and it's completely fine to me that they don't recognize me because I'm just happy knowing that they survived and that they're okay and that they are living their lives. What a great feeling. Do you have like a exciting story where things turned out really great? Gosh, <laughs> I have lots of those. <laughs> um, we're, we're really lucky, like I said, that we have such a big open scope in my county because there's so many things that we get to do that a lot of places don't get to do. I would say the one that comes to mind, and it's probably because I just ran into this patient a couple weeks ago, but this patient was septic. So their blood pressure was extremely low. They were hot, like a fever of like 105, I want to say. Oh my God. Delirious, didn't know what was going on, didn't know who I was, didn't know what was happening. And sepsis is one of those disease processes that once it takes hold, like it moves very quickly. Yeah. Uh, these people can... If they're not treated quickly, they can die very easily. One of my friends passed away from sepsis. Yeah, that could definitely happen. Yes. And this person was a little bit younger. Um, so a little bit of better outcome anyways, but they were just so sick. And we ended up starting an epidrip on them, which is epinephrine. And we do like extremely low dose um, like I'm talking about like micrograms, which is one one thousandth of a milligram. So very, very low doses, just enough to kind of help them bring their blood pressure up a little bit, help them perfuse better, because that's our issue with low blood pressure is that their organs aren't getting blood because they don't have the pressure behind their blood to get it to their organs. Just really a critical patient. And I did not think this patient was going to survive when I dropped them off, I had started that epidrip. I had given them a ton of saline, you know, the protocol, national protocol for sepsis is a ton of saline. So I'm pumping them full of saline, trying to get epi into them to bring their blood pressure up. They're not responding. They're not doing well, still delirious when we dropped them off and we were so busy that I never followed up with it. But my husband and I went out to supper maybe a month ago and I ran into this patient. Oh my God. <laughs> and it was, it was just really like, they didn't recognize me and I didn't expect them to, but it was just such a cool feeling, like knowing that this person was here, um, because I am a hundred percent sure that if they had not gotten treated, that they would have died. Wow. That is amazing. Did you say hello? <laughs> no, I, I won't say hi. <laughs> um, I don't like to insert myself into people's lives like oh hey I know you don't remember me but I saved your life yeah. you know a couple months ago um like I said I really like just staying back in the shadows and not not being that person who like I don't want anybody thanking me for my service I don't want like I just really enjoy my job I love doing what I do I like helping people and that's all I want from it that's so neat. I have a funny story about paramedics um or I guess it was the fire department I had a really bad infection and I didn't know it or, you know, so I am my mother's daughter. Everything's just a scratch. It's not that big of a deal that I got that <laughs> from her. And um, I, so I can't say that I didn't know that I had this infection. I was just ignoring all of the symptoms. It was August. 
It was hot. Mm-hmm. I went on like a six mile hike and I probably didn't have enough water with me. And I got home and maybe an hour later, I fainted. And I was like, it's nothing. That was just so weird that that happened, but I'm fine. you know. <laughs> and then the next thing I know is I, I fainted again. And I do remember it was weird because I was walking. And then all of a sudden, in my mind, I was in this rollover car crash. Oh. And it was because I hit the door, my bedroom door, which banged into the wall behind it. And somehow, very likely, I missed the corner of the dresser and then fell. And so, of course, the paramedics got called in and they were worried I was going to faint again. And, you know, so then they checked my blood pressure on the floor and then they checked my blood pressure on a chair. And then I heard one of them going, you know, I can feel the heat coming off of her. I don't know what my temperature was, but I'm sure that was from the infection. And then I see these two guys go into my dining room and they grabbed one of my chairs and they're like checking it for sturdiness. And I'm like, what the heck are these guys doing? And they're like, this will work. They're talking to each other. And I have to preface this. It's very narrow, but there's like 20 stairs coming up to my front door. There's a hill on this side. Uh And they're like, sit right here. So I sit down and they picked me up like a throne, like they were carrying a throne. (laughs) And I'm like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, we're going to take you down the stairs. I'm like, absolutely not. You're going to drop me. It's going to be like, paramedics coming to take care of you and me. (laughs) I remember I was like, are you guys crazy? I had such a fit. And so they walked me down to the ambulance and then yelled at me all the way to the hospital about how I wasn't taking care of myself and I should have been drinking more water and whatnot. And then I got hydrated and I was fine. And of course, some antibiotics for this infection. But I was was like, you are not going to carry me like a throne down these stairs. We're all going to (laughs) die. (laughs) <laughs> well these days uh, we have a we call it a stair chair and i don't know how old stair chairs are um well before my time but they're nifty uh they're like these chairs that we strap patients into and they have like tracks on the back of them like a tank so you can just like roll people down the stairs oh, neat. but they are the absolute bane of every paramedic's existence because they are so difficult to unfold and then refold. I have made myself look like an idiot so many times standing behind my ambulance trying to get this stupid chair to fold back up and I'm like shaking it so it's rattling. I'm angry at it. (laughs) Standing in the street with this stupid yellow chair. Oh, that's hilarious. They're so nifty and so helpful for situations like that, but I hate them so much. I can imagine. And it sounds like military apparatus, like you need the whole entire, you know, brigade or whatever to roll it out and get it back. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's, it's a multi-person job just trying to get that thing folded up. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, we, we have to get creative sometimes with patients. Like I cannot tell you how many times we've had a patient who is like weak or sick And they're not able to get themselves up and they like roll off the bed and get stuck between the bed and the wall and the bed's in a place where it can't really be moved. So one of us is like crawling down into this crack, 
and hoisting them from behind while somebody else is trying to pull them from the front. And it's just such, it's just a cluster and it's ridiculous, but we have to do what we have to do in order to help these patients or bathtubs people oh. we call it the bermuda triangle of the bathroom uh-huh. and it's that area between a bathtub and a toilet and i swear people become like temporarily gelatinous to slide into this little part of the bathroom and then resolidify. and it is so hard to drag people out of there oh my god <laughs> Most of the time we have fire that responds with us. So we have firefighters on scene with us. So there's like, you know, sometimes we have double paramedics, but most of the time it's like an AEMT or an EMT. So our paramedic, their EMT partner, three or four firefighters, all of us tried to drag this patient out while also keep them from dying from whatever got them there in the first place. And I imagine that like from the outside of the bathroom looking in, it's just a ridiculous scene, like a clown car. Yeah. Complete chaos. Oh my God, that mm-hmm. is so funny. And I can just imagine, you know, when my kids were little and they didn't want to be picked up and they would just yes. go limp and you're just like, I need a little bit of help to get you out of this, you know, wherever it is. So I can just imagine <laughs> dealing with something like that as a grown up, how much harder it would be, you know, dead weight and humans are a weird shape. <laughs> And 150 pounds of dead weight is heavy. Those are some great stories. I just, I'm very passionate about my job. I love what I do. I love getting to continue to learn daily. And it's just one of those jobs where the bad days are really, really bad. And the good days are really, really good. And there's so many ridiculous situations that we get put into and dangerous situations and just funny situations. And I I know this isn't a job for everybody because it it is hard. The hard days are really hard, but it's just such a fun job. And I think people don't get to see the side of, because, you know, most people think of paramedics and EMTs and they're thinking of like night watch and these super critical patients that, you know, they're just dying left and right. That's not all there's a saying in EMS, you know, because EMS stands for emergency medical services. And there's a saying that it's backwards, that service is first, medical sometimes, and rarely an emergency. And that's that's really true. We're, we're out here in the community a lot of the time. And half the time, we're not even transporting these patients. We just go out there and we check them out and we talk to them and, you know, we get our faces out in the community and we make connections. And it's it's a really cool job getting to you know, yes, we get to go and do fun adrenaline pumping things, but just getting to connect with our communities and getting to give back, even, you know, if it's turning on the lights for the kid walking down the street and seeing that joy on their face or getting to go help Mima up and make her a sandwich so that she feels better because her blood sugar was low. There's so many things that we get to do that the general public doesn't see or doesn't hear about or just that they never get to experience it. And as hard as the job is, I don't really see myself ever leaving it because it's just such a unique place to be in life. That is so cool. You know, something that you just said made me want to ask, what advice would you have for somebody to get into EMS? I would say first and foremost, that this is not the kind of job that you should be getting into if you are looking for like an attaboy because we get them, but not very often, you know, it's a pretty thankless job. 
we do occasionally get to see patients, you know, after we run them and after we perform life-saving measures every year, we have what's called a survivor's banquet where people who have come out of cardiac arrest and left the hospital and are living their lives uh, get to come and have supper with the paramedics and the EMTs and the firefighters who save them. But, you know, don't, don't get into it thinking that you're going to get an attaboy. Not only like, are you not going to get that and just be disappointed, but I think EMS and a a lot of first responders in general kind of see that in people. And a lot of us don't really like it. I can tell you from experience, but if you're wanting to get into EMS, don't be afraid of leaving. Like it's not failure. Like I said, people don't really understand what we go through and what we see and how traumatizing some of these calls are. And I think some people kind of get stuck in the, well, I did all the work to get here and now I have to stay here even though I'm not happy. And it's okay to see what we do and experience it and decide that it's not for you. It's just a part of the job. You know, it's a pretty high turnover. But I see these people who are unhappy or traumatized or just burnt out who just keep doing it because this is all they knew or they put in the time and effort to get it and... It not only affects you, but it's going to affect your patient care. And then also, if you're going to get into EMS and you, you know, you end up at a great service and you love it there and you know all that good stuff, give it time because it's going to feel very outlandish for a while. Um, I moved services when I was getting my paramedic, and uh, I've been with my current service for about a year and a half now, and I love it there. But it takes a long time to. Uh, build bonds with people that have been together for, you know, years and years and years. Sometimes it can be really discouraging going to work and like seeing these people who have been friends for years and partners for years. And they have these very unique relationships because when you work with somebody and at my service, we have set partners. So I'm with the same person day in and day out, 48, 72 hours a week, spending all day with them, going into traumatic experiences with them, And you develop these really unique bonds with these people and they become like a second traumatized little family and it takes time to build those bonds. So I think some people get into EMS or firefighting or even, I don't work a lot with PD, but I assume it's probably the same way. And they see these unique bonds and they have a hard time starting to acclimate to these relationships. And it just takes time. And if you are willing to kind of put your head down and get through it and build those bonds yourself, like it, it is a second family. I would do anything for my partners and for my shift and the people that I work with. And I know that if I called them at 2 a.m. and asked for something, that these people would do the same for me. You know, a lot of people from the military get into EMS because it's such a similar situation. You just, these are your people, like they're your second family. You do anything for them. And it's such an amazing feeling knowing that you're part of this big extended family who would do anything for you. Yeah. You go through so many unique and extreme situations together that you understand each other in a way that others would not, not having gone through that. Yeah. And we're, (laughs) we're such like a unique bunch of folks. Like these people come from all walks of life and we have, you know, the dark twisty sense of humor that keeps us going day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Cause you kind of have to have that to deal with your trauma sometimes. Like, don't get me wrong, still go to therapy, (laughs) but you know, (laughs) you have to find ways to cope. And we just, like we don't have filters and it's just, I don't, 
I don't really think there's anything that is off limits with, you know, especially your shift. Like all of us work together. There's 12 of us and we've all worked with each other and we all work together and we have these really close bonds and the silliness is never ending. And it's just, it's fun. Like you get to come back from these horrible calls and still get to like talk about it and not feel judged and then get to have these silly conversations and decompress and not feel like you're just by yourself. Yeah. That's kind of part of human nature. You know, you go through something really traumatic and as you're processing it, you do start to see the humor in it. And it's great to be able to share it with somebody else who gets that, you know, it's such a great environment to work with. And I can't say enough, like how blessed I am to work at the service I work for because not every EMS service is like that. And the service I work for really takes its time to take care of its crews. And I really appreciate that. Like I've never felt like I can't go and talk to one of my supervisors or even like the director. There's been times when I've just like walked in and I'm like, oh, hey, can I have a conversation with you really fast? And he's like, yeah, close the door, sit down, let's talk. So I'm really blessed to get to work at a place that cares so much about their patients and about their crews and about how we're treated. And uh, we get to have these silly bonding experiences and the people that we're working for have been where we've been. So we're never told to, you know, stop being silly or stop having conversations like this or whatever, because they understand like, this is how we bond. This is how we relax. This is how we process these traumas that we've been through. Um, I just, I can't say enough good things about them. They, uh, they've probably got me for life because (laughs) it's not something that you see very often. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice I can't help but compare in my mind what it would be like if you were out here in Los Angeles, you know, because it's, I think, being in a in a more rural place really provides a little bit more softness and kindness. You know, it's just so crazy. I, I don't know if you've been out to Los Angeles, but when you said, you know, Um, I think you had called them Omega calls where it's like somebody just wants to go to the hospital to get picked up. Mm -hmm. I, (laughs) I was going to interject. I think that happens a lot out here. You know, we have, um, unfortunately we have like a huge homeless community. And um, I think the stats I was reading was like 30% of the country's homeless are here just in Los Angeles, not in California, but just in Los Angeles. So I'm sure that the services, the EMS services out here have their hands full all the time. Oh, yeah. And I think I read that they respond to like 12 or 1300 calls a day, which is extreme for us because, you know, we have our 7,000 a year call volume. And oh, wow. um, Yeah. So much, much smaller out here. The next county over is actually a pretty big city and they have a much higher call volume than we do as well. But it does afford us the ability to get all this extra training in and we're able to do training at work. We had briefly talked, me and my husband, because I work outside of the county that I live in. um, So I have a pretty long commute some mornings. We had briefly talked about me applying for the county that I do live in, which is, you know, this big city. And we looked into the way that they have their scheduling set up and they only work 12 hour shifts and we work 24s, but I would be spending more time at work 
or like without my family working for these 12 hour shifts than I would with my 24 hour shifts because we have a lower call volume. So we get the ability to kind of take naps at night and sleep. And so the next morning when I'm coming off of work, like I don't just go home and sleep all day. I can spend time with my family and we don't go into work until 8 a.m. So I get to get up with my kids and hang out with them a little bit in the morning before I leave to go to work. And it really affords us the ability to have this really good work-life balance. um, So I don't feel like I'm just ditching my kids all the time. Um, So you're absolutely right because that we're a smaller county and I mean, we're a big county, but we have a low call volume and we work these longer shifts. We are afforded the ability to do more training and do more bonding with each other and spend more time with our families. And I think we're happier for that. Yeah. Um, I'm willing to give up some of the like cool critical calls that bigger counties get. Um, not, you know, we still get cool stuff, but in order to be the best paramedic that I can be and be the best mom and wife that I can be. And it's definitely something that I really clung to because I like spending time with my family and I like being able to be a good paramedic and I like not sleeping all day because I'm exhausted. Right. I just think it's the perfect balance because you need those spaces in between work, in between life, and you have these young kids and you have to be there for them. And I just think it's so important, especially working in a field where you're seeing the things that really matter it really impacts you and makes you kind of reevaluate what's important for me. And it sounds like you're in a really good place right now. And I think that's amazing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really thankful. My husband's on vacation right now. And I took a vacation earlier this year where I went to a lake with my best friend that I've known since like elementary school. Oh, how fun. Yeah, it was, it was really nice. And that was the first time I'd ever been away from my husband and my kids at the same time for, you know, an extended period of time. Oh, wow. And now my husband is taking a vacation. So he's visiting his best friend. And uh, I think he's kind of feeling the same thing that I feel because we both come from military households and both of us were military. We spent a lot of time moving around. We never really got to put down roots. And now that we live here and I have a really great job and he's got a really great job and we've put down roots and we you know, own a house and our kids have gone to the same daycare since my youngest was born. And I went to eight different schools when I was growing up. And so I think he took this little vacation. He's like, I miss y'all. I want to come back. Aww. And we've just really gotten the chance to establish such a strong bond with each other and with our kids. And a lot of that comes from the fact that I get to work this job that I love and still get to spend time with my family and bond with my family. And I think a lot of people don't get that. You know, a lot of people have to choose, do I want to have a great job and love what I do? Or do I want to have a great relationship with my family? Yeah, I agree. Having those roots really does make a difference. I mean, you know, the experiences that we have growing up, I moved a lot when I was a kid because my parents got divorced and I don't have friends that I've known since I was in kindergarten. Um, We finally settled down fairly early on when uh, my parents moved to Lomita, and I consider that my hometown. So I have a lot of friends from that time period forward. But I can imagine if I had been moving around as much as these military families have to, that it would feel really good to be rooted somewhere and have that sense of stability. Yeah, 
I would really attribute a lot of it to the service that I work for because like I said, like they're very family oriented and they understand that stuff happens. It's always been family comes first. That's amazing that you guys are able to have such a great balance and this really stable foundation for your kids and just being able to enjoy life. And that's what we're here for. Yeah. If you had one thing to share with the world, what would it be? I think just as far as it relates to my job, just being kind to people, especially to these paramedics and EMTs that don't know you, who are coming into your house, who are stressed out, who want the best for you. I'm never going to treat a patient different just because you're rude to me, but I'm not going to be able to form a connection with you. Um, Being understanding of everything that we're going through really helps us to make your day better because it gives us the ability to be kind and not just show up and do our job and leave, um, but really form those connections with our patients and with our communities and being understanding that we really are trying our best. Like I don't know anybody who goes to work every day and they're like, meh, I think I'm just going to just mess around today. Like every call we go on, we're, we're putting in our heart and soul on those calls giving your all when you show up to do hard things, putting down roots, choosing what's best for your life and the lives of those you love, kindness, focus, dedication to community and profession, curiosity, and a great sense of humor. These are just a few of the things that make Katie the wise and incredible person that she is. I loved talking with and learning from her, and I look forward to meeting her someday. If you have a day when things are going in a way that requires emergency services and Katie shows up at your door, just know that you are in expert hands. Please keep sending in your questions and comments. I read them all. If you have a fun, amazing, and inspiring story to share, drop me a line. I'd love to talk to you. The world needs more amazing stories. Please also take a moment to rate this episode because your ratings really do help move this podcast closer to the top of searches so that my friends and I can reach more people. I'm looking forward to sharing more upcoming In the Company of Friends talks with you. So be sure to follow me on the socials and the dot com all at the Queen Trail Podcast. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-I-N-T-R-E-L-L-E podcast. I am Syl Annan, the Queen Trail. And until next time, I wish you passion, adventure, kindness, good health, elegance, and beauty.